0: Welcome to Easter term. The sun is coming out, lockdown is easing, and that means season seven of Switchboard is here. I'm Izzy and I'll be your host this term, joined by a new guest host each week as I keep you in the loop, bringing you Cambridge news and voices wherever you are. At the start of each episode, we're bringing you three headlines we think you should know about. In Cambridge News, Varsity reports that St. John's College has launched a new Free Places bursary program, which will offer over £17,000 to as many as 40 of its undergraduate students each year. In an attempt to meet the needs of students from households with a median income that is 60% below the national average, the students who are supported by the bursary will graduate debt-free. In global news, and as the focus of this episode, India continues to suffer significant consequences of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. As of this spring, India has been seriously hit by the second wave of COVID-19, with death tolls close to half a million by late May. Vaccine rollout is slow, with The Economist reporting that during the height of the surge in infections, the number of people receiving shots did not rise to meet the threat, but instead withered from a 3.5 million a day to barely 1.5 million. Nonetheless, as daily demand for liquid medical oxygen decreases and cases slowly start to drop, it seems the main cause of the decline in numbers, aside from the virus's own natural trajectory, has been the imposition of tough local lockdowns, writes The Economist. Welcome to episode four of Switchboard. This week, we're diving into global issues and talking about the Indian COVID crisis, with a focus on how students at Cambridge and at home in India are dealing with the serious consequences of the crisis and how many students are working hard to raise money and awareness to support relief aid efforts in India. This week, I'm joined by Inika, who will guest host the episode as we hear from students at both Cambridge and Oxford who are working together to run relief fundraisers, as well as students who have been personally impacted by the consequences of the crisis.
1: Hi, I'm Inika. I'm a first year student doing human, social and political sciences at Sylvan. Really excited to be guest hosting this. Regarding in India's second wave, it was quite unexpected, and uh, and here at the university, because we have quite a lot of Indian students, there's been a lot of uh, efforts by students here to set up fundraisers, the one that I'm personally involved in, it's called SCRI Fundraiser, we're working with students at other universities, at King's College, London, Imperial, LSE, stuff like that, to kind of set up a united um, fundraiser, you can find it on Instagram quite easily. Um, and the... The two charities we're supporting. One of them it works in supplying oxygen, and the other one works in supporting marginalized communities who are disproportionately hit not by COVID directly, but by the lockdown measures. There's also a much bigger fundraiser happening in a collaboration between Oxford and Cambridge India societies. The Oxford fundraiser is trying to um, work directly with lo- with a lot of with a network of specific grassroots organisations, and they're also working on getting oxygens directly into the country because we were facing like massive shortages how did you initially get involved in the fundraiser uh, so we started around end of April early May and basically it was just I think a lot of Indian students here felt helpless so I had a friend at the LSC who suggested doing something like that and then I'm the freshers rep for um the, uh, the Cambridge modulus which is like a South Asia not just India political discussion thing so I suggested to them and then we set up and then we set up something. Um,
0: So that's how it started. So has being um, that far from India made it more difficult to feel kind of connected to the situation and feel like you're making a difference? Or has it made it easier to kind of rally more people to be involved? I think in a way,
1: it has been easier because you have quite a lot of Indians here who really want to do anything. But also, you're much more mentally available if you can leave your house and have a normal life and you have much more mental space to deal with that than people who are maybe back home. So if people want to get involved now or want to help now, what can they do? I would suggest you check out one of the two fundraisers, like SCRI, the SCRI fundraiser or the Oxbridge one, and maybe just message them, check out the donation links in the social media, Get message them if you want to get involved, check out the donation links if you're interested in getting donated, and maybe also just read up on
0: the crisis a bit more. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm really looking forward to hosting this episode with you and doing these interviews. First, we heard from two students, one at Cambridge and one at Oxford, to learn more about the fundraising project they have been part of and how Indian students in the UK are finding solidarity and paths for action together.
2: Hi, um, I'm Aradhu. I'm currently doing PhD in law uh, at at Cambridge uh, from India and mostly working in constitutional law. Um, the, uh, we start uh, This project was actually started uh, back in Oxford by a couple of friends um, and uh, the Oxford Indian Society, uh, Oxford India Society, South Asia Society and the society uh, and uh, because there were also sort of uh, a similar project that was being planned in Cambridge, uh, we thought why not actually organize a joint Oxbridge fundraiser. Uh, So this is a fundraiser with the initial target was £10,000, but was later after Cambridge Societies has uh, joined as well, which is Cambridge India Society, South Asia Forum, and Cambridge Bargay Society. We increased uh, the fundraiser uh, to £50,000. The idea behind the fundraiser is to help uh, Indian non-governmental organisations which are working on ground and are in dire need uh, for funds. Uh, to, to to help uh, with oxygen crisis, to help with any other medical supplies uh, and just other food supplies, other, other COVID-related
3: uh, relief work. Hi, um, I'm Iqbal. I'm a third-year DFL student in Oxford. I study bat ecology as it so happens. Um, and like many of the university fundraisers in, in other parts of the country and the world, um, this started because a bunch of us were going to sleep, w- looking at the numbers, waking up, looking at the numbers and feeling quite helpless that this big thing was happening and we were one, safe and two, unable to do much about it. And so, you know, we started fundraiser really quickly, um, without having ever done this before. And, um, like I said, we said, we thought 10,000, 10,000 sounds like a, a reasonable number and that we could. Do a bit of good, but we're not stretching ourselves. And we gave ourselves ten days to get that, and we got it in, I think, two and a half. And then we realized that to keep the momentum going, that w- we could really use um, help from people in other universities. And of course, Cambridge is. Um, we had we knew people in Cambridge like there who were also doing that thing, and so we we tied up with them. Um, our objective for the for the NGOs was that we were going to try to look either outside the cities or, if within the cities, then at communities that weren't getting help from the established routes of help. So the really large organizations we tried to avoid, thinking they've got their PR team, they've got ways of getting funding. And so we really want to look at the the smaller NGOs that are working either in very rural parts of the country or with communities that aren't otherwise likely to get much help because. Be hit just as bad and in some cases worse, such as you know, migrant workers in cities where there's a huge demand for um, whatever medicine, food, and all that, but that they are at a unique disadvantage of being unemployed, not, don't really have um, sort of connections in the city, um, and are then also being hit quite hard because they might be living in quite um, dense uh, housing situations. The biggest task. Um, greatly underestimated when we started was how we were selecting NGOs. We knew it to be contentious. We didn't realize how much work would go into it um, because, so this, this sort of we had stages of vetting them. You have to get the name from a, a source you trust to start with. Um, then you have to reach out to them to make sure they check a bunch of boxes in terms of scope, in terms of the type of aid. In terms of the communities they're working with, you know, in terms of scale and all that, and then you reach out to sort of an independent source to vet them, and then you sit down with the group, and they get and they're on the list, and you sort of work through. Okay, are they getting a, a community where we're interested in in helping? Are they in a location we're interested in helping with? Are they able to? You know, we needed to be quite transparent about what we're doing, and especially when this thing started getting really big. And there needs to be accountability. So can they give us reports on um, how the money's been distributed, where it's gone, who it's helped? Um, and so we had to do this for, I don't know, 100, 120 NGOs, and most of which would be would fall through at some stage. And then of course, there was the really difficult task of sitting down with a list of NGOs doing great work, you know, spread out over the country, and with a team of, I don't know, five of us. Saying okay, we can only choose four of these, five of these. We did it in the tranches, and of course, everyone brings their own experience and their own, you know, perspective to this, and they're getting information from what they're hearing from home and from their friends at home, and you know, and and so everyone, of course, all the NGOs. Had we just blindly picked them, the final list had fantastic NGOs, but the actually whittling it down and saying okay you know, we don't have one in Bihar, let's try to get one. Okay, and then the West Bengal one, that's fallen through for some reason. Let's f- find another one really quickly. And on top of this was this layer of what kind of aid, because there was money, which was the easiest for us. We're giving to an NGO, simple or done. But most of them wanted oxygen concentrators. That situation changed over the last few weeks. But when we started this, that was the absolute need. That's why people were dying is they didn't have oxygen. And so we, and this is what I mainly focused on was finding ways to get oxygen into the country. There were ways to distribute it within the country, but we felt like even if we were taking it from a city that was reasonably well-stocked and taking it to a rural area, redistribution within a country still meant that somebody else was not getting it. So we wanted to effect a net increase. And so we found people. And you know, this is what has surprised me throughout, was that there were businessmen and you know students and, and various communities that were just dropping what they had to help and we had businessmen who were basically selling out selling it to us at cost if we if we could prove it was going to an NGO they said okay we will get it to you at cost we will handle logistics we will handle customs and as long as you are doing this for NGOs we'll help you so we did actually quite surprisingly find many routes to get oxygen into the country um, oxygen concentrators.
1: How in terms of aid requirements, do you think the second wave differs from the first wave that we had back when COVID first hit?
2: So according to my understanding um, uh, sort of the, the second wave particularly had a massive oxygen crisis, which was sort of staring at your face. People who are, it's, it's, it's not just sort of, there were particular areas in India where there was oxygen crisis, it was widespread across many cities. And at least the last mile, mile delivery was a major problem. There was sort of understanding that perhaps the oxygen is available, but delivery, supply chain is the problem, uh, but it hit so sort of suddenly and there was lack of preparedness on whose ever part. I think another sort of uh, uh, big issue uh, in COVID relief, uh, which we saw in the first phase and uh, was, was sort of, there are many, uh, effects which are not directly COVID-related effects but are faced by many sort of particularly marginalized sections which many displacement of of, of many migrant workers, for instance. There are many uh, economic side effects of it. Of course, our COVID relief is not uh, focusing directly on the economic side effects but which is very clearly visible in sort of differential access to health. Um, And given how how suddenly sort of secondary uh, peaked uh, and how devastating it was. Uh, th- th- that was particularly visible when it came to sort of uh, COVID relief measures about how it, uh, uh, the health, particularly, was not uh, very well accessible uh, to certain sections. Of course, the numbers were much higher, uh, and that way, uh, the, the 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 health facilities, uh, which were uh, which appeared in the first wave, to not be to to to, to kind of be fine. Uh, because the because the mortality rate uh, didn't seem to be that high, uh, suddenly got tested right because the numbers were high. Mortality was of course very high, and there were many people who were in need in critical uh, need of critical care. Uh, so uh, the hospital beds, for instance, uh, became particularly difficult in the second wave. So both the scale and, in some ways, also uh, the nature of demand uh, was much higher or much different uh, in the second wave than in the first wave.
3: Yeah, sure. Um... You know, throughout the first wave, epidemiologists were looking at India and saying, why are the numbers so low? And it wasn't because of a lack of testing. It, the numbers were low, mortality was low and caseload was low for a country with such a high population density. And there were you know theories around trans immunity and things like that. And when the UK variant you know ravaged the UK, we know it hit India, but it just didn't it didn't hit. It just came and for the most part, you know, the spread wasn't that, that, that severe. Um, I think the, the variant made a huge difference. One of the theories was that um, India, the general standard of hygiene in, in many low-income parts of the country meant that people were being exposed to really nasty viruses their whole lives. And so there was this, their immune system was just more robust. And so when the first wave came, it, it didn't really hit as hard. It's true, we had a really tough lockdown really quickly and that made a big difference. Um, but the second wave simply had a, the variant that came out, it, it hurt younger people much more. This second wave really hit people in a completely diff- different demographic. Um, and it also just spread quicker. And there was fatigue. The first lockdown being as intense and as strict and as long as it was, there was fatigue at the end of that and fatigue on, on I think on the part of, of not just people but also officials hesitancy to to lock down again because of the economic ramifications um, and so it didn't happen I, we're still not in a la- national lockdown and what many expected to happen during the first wave just got pushed
2: yeah although um, so just something more to add there as the second wave uh, for students like sort of Indian students who are not in India was very really- Uh, was particularly uh, different, uh, especially who continued to, uh, who were in the UK when the second wave hit UK, right, uh, this winter, Um, is because when second wave was going on in India and uh, sort of here in UK this winter, it seemed that in India almost everything is going fine, things were opening up, Uh, there was this dissonance, right, where, yeah, like here we are sitting in the lockdown, things seem like things are fine there, but uh, shouldn't go there now, what if we carry virus from here to there again, Um, but when things started getting well here. Things have opened up, friends are going out, you have plans coming up every day, every weekend, whatever, and you have sort of second wave hitting there, right? Uh, So there's this sort of months of now, this sort of living in two worlds constantly, talking to your family, your friends, where when they are doing just well, it seems like things are not good here. When you are doing almost well, just well, uh, you realize that uh, it's, um, now they are really going through a very difficult situation. So that way, I think handling of second wave for Indian students abroad particularly was slightly different than first wave because in first wave, it seemed like the entire world is going through it together.
0: Yeah, that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that was sort of where that's I wanted to go next. I'm curious to know what your experience has been like being in the UK while you know, the situation is changing in India, while things are getting better here, things are getting worse there, um, especially right now as things are really opening up here. Um, what has that kind of, uh, experience been like, and do you feel like there's a disconnect between your, your experience of the situation here and your family back home or friends or
3: the first wave, it felt like we were all in it together. Like the conversations being had all over the world were basically the same. How's your lockdown? How's your lockdown now? It's, oof, I mean, the, when it started, it, it happened so quickly that anyone on any kind of social media all you could see from home was people desperate for oxygen and for hospital beds and then for ICU beds and every Indian person I know here has had a day where it's just been so -so, you know I lost so-and-so I lost a friend I lost a family member and it's again the the feeling of helplessness was was really stark Um, but that's part of you know us as third-year default students, at least me and Samir, we realized that as first years, if this was what we were going through, that would have been tough. As as undergrads, as you know, as people who just, for other reasons, also not used to Oxford life or the intensity of this life, to also be dealing with this was, would be quite tough. So, um, in parallel, we also did the the re- setting out sort of guidelines to send to colleges. This is how this is what's happening to these students this is how you can help them. Um, and we hope it helped, but it's, it's hard to know because Indian students tend not to, uh, they tend to kind of compartmentalize stress, move on. And um, so it's, it's, it's hard to know, it's hard to know how, how much you can help and how much you are helping.
2: Uh, yeah, no, uh, totally. So there were days when uh, I'll wake up and I'll be scared checking my WhatsApp, right? Uh, but I might have to because there might be something coming up in Cambridge, I might have to meet someone or things were opening up after long times, like let's meet for coffee, let's meet for that, etc. And at the same time, below that message of invitation to meet for something, you will have another message asking for this or sort of someone declaring some bad news. Uh, it was... Even the general checking, right? So initially when it began and the second wave began, you're just asking your friends, hi, I hope all's well, you and yours are keeping well. Um, and over time, it just became about uh, people not sort of replying, yes, it's well, but everyone has some bad news to tell you. And you know, so it, um, it, so that way it was is um, uh, right? That way it was very uh, difficult. In some ways, I think uh, for many Indian students to uh, at least were involved in, in the fundraiser and the related activities, It was in a way to sort of also channel some of that stress, um, I'd say, Um, uh, if you're waking up and feeling helpless, um, there's so little you could do sitting here. And perhaps that's one of the reasons that I think the fundraiser came up and we also at times gathered physically in the market square and that gathering instead of going around with the fundraiser link uh, to the people asking them to donate was in some way felt like we could... uh, uh, do something so you know we it was it, it was we to also channel our uh, stress to what you're seeing every day. So day let's channel that into some kind of action
3: and also just the, the community of these are other people also going through the same thing and at least for me you know the byproduct of this is that i now know all these resources and all these things that i can do that that can help people and we had people personally come up to ask okay i need an oxygen concentrator for my family how do I do that and we had we had ways to get get them for that get them uh, get those to them and I know at least one person who's had a oxygen concentrator delivered to their home through the the networks we created which is you know which is great. <laughs> And an example
2: for sort of how much students were longing to sort of do this kind of work uh, is when we created uh, the fundraiser, right? Um, And it was not just we created and uploaded it and shared it on a few pages and somehow the funds came through. Um, It went through sort of a long process of really uh, disseminating the information among Cambridge colleges. Um, uh, So we needed sort of volunteers from that particular particular college to contact JCRs, MCRs, uh, or, or or college head, college administration to sort of spread the news around or departments. And we created sort of internal groups. We reached out to whoever we could and there were volunteers very quickly. We got volunteers very quickly for so many different departments and colleges. Um, so this is also, I really want to sort of highlight that there were more than I know, 30 to 40 students at least uh, sort of involved very properly. But we, the, the support that you could see was clearly sort of, I think a reflection manifestation of sort of how much people wanted to help, and how helpless they were feeling sitting
1: here. Related to what you were just saying, do you think that there's an awareness around Cambridge and Oxford about the crisis in India? Do you think there's any kind of dimension that the UK students, Cambridge or Oxford colleges, for example, miss out when they're thinking about the crisis or coming up with policies? Is there anything that you think is missing in UK discussions about the crisis?
3: So at least from what I pointed out to my college, and I don't know if this is part of the general conversation, is that many students are now sitting down to write exams, knowing that immediately after, they're going to have to go home, which is like saying, write this exam and go back to war, in that they're going to have to fly home to a country that's, if not in lockdown, you know, for all practical purposes, needs to be in lockdown, ambulances going everywhere, you know, hospital beds for everyone in a state of Sustained stressful panic. Um, and I'm not one of those people, but I can imagine that's pretty stressful. So, at least for, for mine, I said, I went to my college and I said, How about um, accommodation extensions? Because they can stay here. Maybe they're just writing up. Maybe they've got other things to do. Maybe they're just not going home. And that's more of a priority right now because going home is, is so dangerous. Um, I think, in general, the the response has been incredible. Um, I think everyone around the world really rallied uh, to help. But um, it does take individuals and you know news outlets really broadcasting why the Indian second wave was so much worse than what was happening in most parts of the world. There were other parts of the world that were bad. And right now, you know, Nepal and Pakistan are also going to be hit really hard. Um, But at the, you know, a couple of weeks ago when oxygen was still basically unavailable, I think India was just so, so, so much worse than anywhere else in the world. And putting that into perspective and putting down exactly what, why it was worse and why it was not like other countries that had you know in their first wave that 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 really helped i mean the the global response was fantastic
2: uh no i i mean i broadly agree that the uh, uh that the response uh, of, of the global community has generally been good uh perhaps what i could talk about is more particularly i uh, say about the university right uh, and about sort of the situations which indian students are in um, I think more or less, sort of many colleges have also sent out emails asking students check up if like Indian students are doing fine, if they need anything. And I, I, I hope if I could suggest something beyond awareness, that would be it. Um, it's the colleges, university administration uh, could perhaps sort of just let Indian students know that we are there. If you needed anything, if you, and sometimes it's it could be just small things, right? Just sort of. Uh, extension on submission could perhaps help, or, or it could be, uh, it could just be sort of minor support as Iqbal just said that, you know, letting students stay over uh, for say a month in summer or extra because it's really dangerous time to go back to India right now. There are many students coming through, uh, might want to come back for, uh, for work because in India it's very difficult, right? So they might want to come back. There's a red list right now, which is also again, very expensive. Um, and perhaps at least the students who are not funded uh, through scholarships uh, and might want to come back for that, right? Or might have gone uh, without expecting that COVID wave would hit. Perhaps uh, colleges, universities, depending on the means and how much uh, all of that is available, could perhaps help them in some ways, right? Uh, giving at least minor financial support if students need. So I think that I agree with Iqbal that the awareness is broadly there. Uh, uh, but if there are sort of few practical measures that the awareness could be converted into, it could perhaps be this kind of measures. Have the
0: societies that have been working on the fundraisers have they been able to provide spaces of solidarity and welfare for Indian students?
2: To be to be to be very honest, it's being very difficult. So the support that we could provide is sort of getting together, talking to people about it. Um, societies don't have uh, that kind of sort of resources. Uh, but what we could do is sort of just have a solidarity network, so to speak. Uh, We also sort of emailed colleges and administration uh, when we asked them for fundraiser. We also asked them if sort of they could specifically uh, reach out to Indian students um, regarding this. Uh, So that's perhaps something that we tried to do. But, but as such sort of direct support, I don't think the societies have that kind of sort of resources where all to provide direct support to students. It can only sort of petition colleges, uh, raise awareness, or provide ways through which we can talk about it within ourselves.
3: Like we have at least in Oxford this big group of, of Indian students. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard for many of us to take the initiative. This is a common thing of. If you have stressed out students, it's much harder to ask, require them to take the initiative. But if you're on this big group and conversations are happening and plans for tea and plans for a walk are happening, then it's quite easy to to get people who, who need the support to just kind of join in because they're already a part of the conversation.
1: Uh, returning to how you talked about choosing um, specific NGOs, could you maybe give us a quick overview of which ones you chose and why? Like doesn't have to just maybe which region, what they're doing, which communities they're helping.
3: We had names that were everywhere. We had, you know, Chandigarh, Chathisgarh Chh- and Assam and, uh, and all sorts of places that and, and NGOs that actually fit, that, that, you know, checked all the boxes. But uh, these were the, you know, the 2 a.m. calls ended up with us sitting down and saying, we can't give them, we can't give money to everyone we have. We had, you know, even 30, 30 names, I think, at the end that all that checked all the boxes, and we knew we weren't gonna get all the locations. The objective for us was always time. It was okay, even if we're even if we're whittling down that list and including and excluding names that we'd like to have on. The objective is to get it quickly because there's a crisis money that's needed for like oxygen, and then there's the post COVID crisis, which is the the, the livelihoods that are gonna be lost. The just you know, so many families had lost the breadwinner and especially among um, poor communities. And we, there was the idea and perhaps this still is of doing a second fundraiser just for that. But this one, the focus was on how are we saving lives now? And a lot of that concerned oxygen. So many of these organizations asked for money but that's to supply oxygen. They had their own roots to get it.
0: Do you did you find that the fact that everything is online because of the pandemic, did that make it easier to be more responsive to changes happening in the situation or more difficult to connect with the situation? How did that change your ability to, to kind of uh get people organized or to respond to changes as they happened?
2: I mean, uh if it were not for sort of all the online communication we did, as, as Igbal just mentioned, late night calls or just very quick sort of emergency calls that we got onto. Even sort of the first collaboration between Oxford and Cambridge uh, was a a really emergency. I spoke to someone I knew, one of my friends there, and uh, he arranged a call later that day and we all just sort of got onto an emergency call and quickly sort of had a meeting and decided. So I think it's, yeah, for sure, I think it was on internet. is just what has made it possible in many ways, right? I mean, the fundraiser was online. Um, Although we did go to sort of to the, to the, to the uh, we did organize a physical fundraiser divided into smaller groups and went to, as I said, Market Square, Lion Yard in Cambridge or some other places, similarly people in Oxford. But I think more or less this activity was uh, sending, you know, even the fundraiser was, raising awareness about the fundraiser was online, like sending emails to colleges, to students, to sort of putting up on uh, Facebook, um, using sort of confession pages that Cambridge has, uh, to, to the official communication channels that call it everything was online, right?
1: Um, thank you so much. It's been really, really
2: lovely. Thank you very, very much uh, to, the, to the student communities.
3: And also all the people who worked on this, it, it made a huge difference in the end. Then
2: I think just to conclude, I think in part the inspiration was also many of the friends here who are of course not from India and don't know how to really help directly asking before we started fundraiser how could we help right like your friends would come to you and say clearly i'm reading about situation in india how could we help and if if there were not enough people asking us personally at different points of time how could they help uh then perhaps we wouldn't have thought of starting a fundraiser because it seemed like this is a the way they could help
0: after the end of the fundraiser where where do you see the kind of efforts going where does it go from here
3: there's a lot of work left on this guy i mean we're looking at the number and oh we've hit our target but the post yeah. uh, work there's a lot of lot of work that's has yeah. to be done yeah i mean even if we came out of this with just guidelines for running a, a student society fundraiser that would be useful because if we had that we would have saved a lot of
2: yeah and i think just to conclude i think iqbal has already mentioned but i think the challenge that we took on ourselves was in the sense, it's not just the money. Someone might see it as like, oh, it's 65K, come on. There have been bigger fundraisers, right? Um, but the challenge was to not just transfer 75 k to an NGO, which we won't have to wear. It's a big enough NGO. Everyone knows about it. So just give the money to them, right? Uh, but the challenge that we took on ourselves, as Iqbal mentioned, is we, we went a bit ambitious, like actually give the money to smaller NGOs which are not getting money otherwise. So which raises a two-pronged challenge of them ensuring that they're effective enough and at the same time that... That that the sort of they are they 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 should be getting the money right, wetting both their legal stuff at the at the same time their effectiveness on the ground. uh, So which made it very difficult. So it's not just the sum, but sort of the work that goes behind to ensure that the sum is given in an accountable way.
0: Well, thank you so much again for being here. Um, It's been really interesting talking to you and hearing about all of the work that you are both um, contributing to. I think. Like you said, Iqbal even if this is just you're just setting a precedent for how student society fundraisers are run in the future already that is such a significant um, kind of impact to be leaving just on the university community, but then also clearly you're having a. Um, you're having a much um, larger impact outside um, of the UK and, and the things that you're doing in India so really, really impressive stuff then we spoke to aman who gave us some insight into what being a uni student living in india is like at the moment and how he is coping with the situation around him
4: hey i'm uh, i'm aman from uh, from bangalore in india uh, i'm doing my uh, first year engineering in selvin i mean i was i'm currently uh, intermittent I'm in bangalore at the moment back, back home in india the situation looks like it's getting better now but uh, it's been it's definitely been hard it's, just coming back towards the end of March. And since then, the thesis just kept kept going up over here.
0: When did you intermit? Well, did it have anything to do with the COVID situation or was it just kind of for personal reasons?
4: No, it was for other personal reasons.
0: Are you still able to stay in touch with people from Cambridge? Do you feel like you you've been able to get any kind of like support from uni friends?
4: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've I've uh, I've continued to stay in touch with quite a few of my friends from Themebridge, uh, and also you know, when the the university, the other the other support systems that are available with the university. Do you think you
1: could just uh, talk a little bit about um, the situation in India, like since you returned to now, like maybe just walk us through it really briefly?
4: So yeah, when I uh, when I when I when I came back. Things were initially looking good, uh, so I was definitely looking forward to being back, you know, meeting my friends, meeting my cousins, and all of that. Uh, but then soon after that, obviously the uh, the numbers started going up, and then I myself uh, uh, tested positive for COVID. So then I was in isolation, uh, and literally like immediately after I right, came out of isolation is when the situation kind of got out of hand. Uh, I think that that's that's when we were at like. 200000 cases a day or something like that uh, so that's when we, an, we had a uh, lockdown uh, in most states in india if i'm not wrong and uh, especially where i am in uh, in bangalore the situation was quite bad it was one of the worst affected cities and at one point the worst affected city if i'm not wrong
0: some of the other people we've spoken to for this episode have told us about fundraising that they've done in cambridge um, have you been able to, or have you wanted to, kind of get involved with any sort of efforts from Cambridge-based societies um, to do any kind of fundraising or any kind of work like that? Or have you done anything from India?
4: Uh, no, I, I I haven't done anything with any Cambridge-based societies. What I have been doing, however, is uh, uh, working with a few volunteer groups here in Bangalore, which were uh, uh, trying to help you know, like critical patients get, get beds and ICUs and things like that in time.
0: Thank you so much for being here. That was really great. Finally, we spoke to Akshata, a first year student at EMMA who told us more about the difficulties being separated from family and friends back in India, and how she has tried to balance her Cambridge workload with the stress of following the situation in India.
5: Well, hi, I can start. Um, I'm Akshata, I'm a first year student at EMMA doing English, um, and I'm from Mumbai.
0: It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about
5: kind of your personal experience with the um, COVID crisis in India? Well, I'm incredibly privileged because I'm back here in Cambridge and I didn't have to be in India during the second wave. Um, and I was there in the first lockdown, which was also pretty terrible uh, last year. So I think for me personally, it was probably just like, on social media, hearing about my family and friends going through it. Um, But I guess it's a lot like I think for me, it was also um, just reading about the news beyond my circle of family and friends because India is such a large country. And sometimes you just you see the tweets from the people in your circle and the people you know. But it's um, the issue is way bigger than that. The problems are way bigger than that. Um, So I think there's whether I was from India or not, whether I was just a random student in Cambridge, I think the issue would affect me anyway. Oh, well, When did you return to Cambridge after first term and like how do you feel about that? Um, so after my first term I came back like halfway through land um, when cases in India were still pretty low uh, which personally for me was like worked out really well because it means that I didn't Gets like um I, I could return back to university whereas I know there were some people who couldn't come back because they were stuck in India after it, um it went on the red list. Um, was it difficult coming back during Lent and then I'm guessing
0: you just have stayed since then, or did you go yeah, back at all um, between then and and now?
5: No, I've been here since the middle of Lent, but I think I have a great support network here, so it wasn't that difficult. I think it was just a bit of a shock when. The cases are rising in India again and you see it on the news and you're like oh is this happening Um, and then you get like calls and you're like talking to people and you read the news and you're like okay this is bad mm. so I guess that way but it was also strange because you're also weirdly distanced from it In that I could go on with my everyday life knowing that my friends back in Mumbai were just stuck at home A lot worse was happening on the streets and in the hospitals but over here I just could continue with my everyday life, so I guess there's a bit of guilt associated with it. Thank you do you think you could talk a little more about the support network you mentioned, like how do you think it's been, like
1: with support from college or from like the university community in general?
5: Um Yeah, I think that's super important. So personally, I've had the best experience in that my tutors have been absolutely lovely. My docs, my supervisors have all been like checking up to make sure that like you know the mental um the mental tool isn't too much and that I'm going uh, coping well with the studies but I definitely would not go as far as to say that the university or every college or even every tutor or supervisor has been um has been as sensitive about the issue I have um I've had conversations with Indians who just feel um very like mentally emotionally overwhelmed but have not had the same kind of pastoral care support or even if Even if you can't have supervisors and tutors, you know, giving you an extension or doing that, but even checking in on students and just checking to see if they're okay. I feel like that is the bare minimum that that colleges and the uni should be doing. But the fact that I know most colleges didn't send out an email of support, didn't ask their students whether they were doing all right, was I think personally for me a bit eye opening.
0: Were there any societies or groups of students who you were able to kind of um, turn to for support when the university wasn't really able to offer that?
5: Well, personally, I, I didn't turn to India soccer as much just because I hadn't been very involved in it before, but I know it has been a very nice community for a lot of Indians. Um, for me, uh, the student union at EMMA has been absolutely amazing. Um, they've been checking up on their students. We. As a JCR, also donated money to fundraisers, and have been very sensitive about it. Just in terms of discussing the topic, do you think there's a lot of awareness
1: of, about it, or like discussion about it outside the Indian community, or do you think did you think that most the most of the people discussing it were Indians?
5: I think it was a really weird kind of cognitive dissonance because, like, on one level, the Indians discussing it obviously had personal links to the issue and we're discussing it from a very personal space. Whereas, of course, there was so many people, like so many non-Indians who were incredibly sensitive about it and were trying to make the themselves aware through reading stuff and like donating. But there were also a lot of non-Indian written like articles about, you know, why we should care about India because the virus can spread outside India and then it will affect the UK. Um, and then when you see articles like that, you're like, that that's not why you should be caring about people dying in the street. That, that's not, that shouldn't be a first reaction.
0: That must be so frustrating to hear people only interested in a kind of self-serving way. Like you were saying before about how for you being
5: here put some kind of distance between you and the actual situation. It's just weird to, you know, go about your daily life here and um, you, everyone came back for Easter term. So like have fun, go out with everyone make the most of like everything opening up in the UK after so long and at the same time seeing things shut down in India and not being able to do that much I feel like definitely like being part of the conversation making sure that uh, I was finding reliable places to donate and ask other people to donate to um, and just like keeping myself updated as difficult as it was it definitely made like helped me make sure that I wasn't living in like a different reality and ignoring what was going back we've spoken to some other people who are who have sort of told us about what kind of support
0: colleges are offering for students who maybe for whom it maybe isn't even safe to go back home right now or who would yes. be um kind of in a better position staying in college or staying in the uk what what's and your plan has, in the summer? because
5: college has been pretty nice about like letting international students stay over the break if they can't return back home so we would still need to like get individual permission, like it's not a sort of blanket, like you can stay if you want. But I feel like it has been pretty easy to approach college and ask them for permission to stay over.
0: It must be difficult to kind of like, keep your keep your eye on what's happening at home, but also keep up with exams and keep up with your work here. Do you think you and, and other students welfare has been affected by the whole situation in general? Like,
5: no, definitely. I think for the weeks when like the situation was the worst and it's still terrible in India, it was really hard to like just sit and focus on writing an essay like it's almost as if writing that essay isn't my immediate concern. Um, and I think for a lot more students who were maybe a lot more personally affected than I was for a sustained period of time, it would have been so ridiculously hard to hear about their family or friends going through terrible things back home and still be expected to submit an essay every Monday morning or whatever.
0: Cool. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was really nice getting to speak to you. That's all for episode four. As was mentioned in the interviews, if you're interested in getting involved or donating, please do look into the SCRI project or get in touch with fundraiser or society organizers to reach out and contribute if you can. Thanks again to Inika for guest hosting this episode with me, and we'll see you next week.